This paid program may not represent the views of Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Radio. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Radio does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about management with a government executive who is changing the way government does business. The Business of Government Hour is produced by the IBM Center for the Business of Government, which was created in 1998 to encourage discussion and research into new approaches to improving government effectiveness. You can find out more about the center by visiting us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. And now, the Business of Government Hour. Welcome to the Business of Government magazine, a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, exploring pressing public management issues facing us today. I'm Michael Keegan, your host. This show provides a glimpse into the many different missions and programs of the U.S. federal government. It does so from the perspective of the mission leader, offering a snapshot in time discussion around challenges faced, innovations pursued, and initiatives yet to yield their desired outcomes. These are leadership stories that introduce you to those on the front line charged with delivering the business of government. Along with telling the stories of actual government leaders, I also present insights and actionable recommendations from some of the best minds in public management research, focusing on key challenges facing government today. This underscores the fundamental mission of the IBM Center for the Business of Government, and that is connecting research to practice. Research is collaboration, notes the great Aaron Waldalski. The obligatory footnotes merely memorialize the fact that we are dependent on the work of others. Whether we build on or amend or oppose it, the work of predecessors and contemporaries provides the indispensable framework from which we write. Constant conversation is the only way, and the conjunction of idea and opportunity is critical. This is what I seek with each show. And it is the hallmark of this Year in Review magazine show. If there's a constant theme that runs through these conversations, it is a singular focus on service to country, to those who have made the ultimate sacrifice, and to mission. The leaders I introduce manifest a commitment to making a difference and trying new and improved ways of doing just that. They reflect on the status of their strategic priorities, the challenges they face, and the work they do. Lieutenant General Charles Lucky, Chief of Army Reserve and Commanding General of the U.S. Army Reserve Command, leads a community-based force of more than 200,000 soldiers and civilians with a footprint that includes 50 states, five territories, and more than 30 countries. The Army Reserve is a critical force provider of trained and ready units and soldiers, delivering full-spectrum capabilities essential for the Army to fight and win wars and respond to homeland emergencies on behalf of the American people. Lieutenant General Lucky discusses the mission of the U.S. Army Reserve, the essential components of force readiness, and the Army Reserve's support of civilian authorities, and so much more. In 1908, uh, the Army Reserve started primarily as a way to expand the medical capability and capacity of the Army in time of war. And, and the theory is very simple. 
um, it's essentially a business model. But the theory was we don't need to have full-time cardiothoracic surgeons and orthopedic surgeons and, and emergency room technicians all the time at the full capacity that we would need in combat to support land, land uh, warfare operations. And so the, the notion was let's go find places in America where by and large the technical capabilities, the talent that we would need, we will need in the event of a war is essentially being trained and that readiness is being sustained in, in everyday you know, America. So we're talking about the Mass General Hospital in Boston or any number of Mayo Clinic. So we go out and we find capability that's already out there, very high state of technical capability and readiness, and then we bring it into the Army as needed, when needed, through the Army Reserve, episodically, for limited periods of time, at a massive cost savings to the taxpayer. So that's that was the initial going in idea behind developing this capability for the Army. Our military services are ready to confront today's evolving global threats and national challenges. General Lucky lays out his strategic direction for the U.S. Army Reserve under his command, highlighting his key priorities for enhancing foresight and cultivating agility to meet these challenges and threats head-on. So let me tell you the sort of the three lanes of, of activity or lines of effort, or however you want to characterize it, the readiness of the force. Within the context of readiness, uh, we've identified, depending on what may be required in terms of time and where we would have to potentially go and what the Army would need from us and what the joint warfighter would need from the Army. And when I say warfighter, I'm talking about the combatant commands that would potentially need uh, capabilities. About 18 percent of uh, our force, that when I say our force, I'm talking the Army Reserve, needs to be ready to go at a sufficiently high level of, of capability. And when I talk about capability, I'm talking about ability to move, ability to shoot, which is lethality, uh, the ability to, to survive and win on a modern battlefield. Um, so 18 percent, so plus or minus somewhere between 25, 30,000 soldiers potentially, very quickly. When I say very quickly, I mean less than 90 days. In some cases, significantly less than 90 days. So t to get after that, uh, we've basically designed a construct, and it's Ready Force X. When you talk about modernization, which formations get equipped first, where do we put our priority in terms of how we man it with full-time support to make sure it stays at a high level of readiness, where is the equipment supposed to be, how much training do they need in any given year, where do they need to go to. All of the, all of the questions I just posited, they all sort of get answered within the context of, well, who needs to be ready to do what first? Supporting that, by and large, is the next line of effort, which is what I call all things employers and families. Because we're not going to get ready unless our soldiers are ready. So the, so the fundamental building block of readiness is the individual soldier. When you're willing to share one of your great employees with the leader of America's Army Reserve, this is a partnership because this is all about us being woven together to, to, as, from a national security perspective to, to support the security fabric of the United States. That's that's what the American people want and need us to do. So I want to make sure employers understand they're part of this team and you are doing the right thing. I mean, this is a patriotic thing for you to do in many cases to, to support this the national security apparatus of the United States by sharing really, really good talent with us. And we have fantastic talent in our reserve. And then the third part of this is the family. So I look at it as a triangle. Sure. 
because I've got to make sure that the family's comfortable, that the, the soldier is able to maintain good civilian employment, able to spend time with family, doing the things that we expect members of families to do, and at the same time, being ready and able to, to support the warfighting effort of the United States. Being ready and able to support the warfighting efforts of the U.S. comes with its own challenges. General Lucky elaborates. Without a doubt, the, the biggest challenge that I have as a leader of this team is to drive a change in the culture of one of the three components of the Army and, and ensuring that the, that the culture of that component matches and is going to support the development of certain capabilities to deal with the emerging threats in the 21st century. We are now in an environment where there are competitors, potential competitors, um, on, the, on a global scale that have the ability to challenge our military capabilities, our military power, what we have referred to as overmatch, what we have essentially relied on to be able to operate to some degree of impunity across in certain domains, um, who now have the ability to challenge us in each and every one of those domains. Very simply, driving the requisite cultural change in an organization is probably the biggest challenge I face. General Lucky doesn't face this challenge or any other challenges alone. We got each other. We got a team. This is a this is a team of two hundred thousand soldiers and all the families and employers that are supporting them, and civilians that are on that are on top of my my my, my soldiers. So we're well over two hundred thousand now, across twenty time zones that are all have all ultimately whether they remember it or not until I remind them bought into this same core mission. So that's a big deal. So part of this is, is me as a leader trying to message to the team, hey, look, take care of each other, keep an eye on each other, stay engaged, and don't limit your concern to just your fellow soldiers. I mean, you got there's a lot of other people out there that are counting on us, the America's Army Reserve, to model what right looks like across any number of domains of activity. General Lucky remains focused on cultivating the right model of the citizen soldier from new ways of doing business, such as Ready Force X, or to bringing in new capabilities and disciplines into the U.S. Army. So I've been a trial lawyer for a long time and, and obviously been a soldier for a long time. And I encourage anybody and everybody who's willing to listen um, to, to be involved, be engaged, um, be a participant in civil society. I talk to my soldiers all the time about intellectual fitness, and I talk a little bit about spiritual fitness. Uh, and as the leader of America's Army Reserve, I feel very much it's a part of my responsibility to the Army um, and to my team to make sure that we're out there messaging to the American people, this is the coolest tribe, this is the coolest tribe in Western civilization. And I want people to want to be a part of this team because it's a great way for them to give back. It's a great way to put others before self. And it's also just a, a great team to hang out with. And so... To me, it's all about public service. It is all about public service, as General Lucky, chief of the Army Reserve, underscores. But it's also about taking care of those who have served this country at the end of the spear. The U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs plays an integral role in doing just that. With its many services, the mission of the VA is ensuring the well-being for him who shall have borne the battle and for his widow and often. VA's goal is to provide veterans with the care they need at the right time at the right place, and from the right provider. In some cases, veterans may need to receive care from a local community care provider paid for by VA. 
Dr. Balia Hia, the former Deputy Undersecretary for Community Care at VA, tells us more. The Office of Community Care is a critical part of the Veterans Health Administration, and it's about improving the veterans' experience with community care, ensuring that we are good partners for community providers, and making sure that VA employees that administer these programs uh, really have all the tools they need to be s- successful. So the heart of it is really, this is VA's office. Um, it's all about partnership. It's VA community care is about creating partnerships with outside providers, hospitals, clinics, to build a large network to take care of our veteran population. Ensuring access to non-VA community care providers is critically important to the VA system, but it's no small feat. As with anything worth doing, it is fraught with challenges. Dr. Yahia elaborates. There's probably some management challenges that overlap. I think for us, it's really ensuring that we are working on improving operational efficiencies today. So you want to make sure that your program is driving forward to deliver the experiences that veterans need, making it easier for community providers to work with us and make us more efficient in how we do our job. At the same time, uh, we have to, we know we have to design the system of the future. Bill Marion, Deputy Chief of Information Dominance and Deputy Chief Information Officer at the U.S. Air Force, he provides oversight of the Air Force's IT portfolio valued at $17 billion and includes IT investment strategy, networks and network-centric policies, communications, information resource management, information assurances, Marion outlines the U.S. Air Force's information dominance strategy, priorities, its modernization plan, and how the U.S. Air Force is changing the way it does IT. So everything we do starts with what we call the info information dominance flight plan. Uh, so when you look at the Air Force level, there's an Air Force strategic plan, which is large, high-level uh, Air Force operational uh, st- strategy for how we do business. Our information dominance flight plan really segments that out a little bit farther. So in the IT, cyber, and weapon system space, what our priorities. So in essence, have four. Uh, the first one is really freedom of action and, and interoperability of those weapon system platforms. The, the second big one is really around the cybersecurity realm. Um, again, all facets, uh, everything from defensive activities to commodity IT and how do you secure a commercial in concert with industry uh, to continuous monitoring of our systems to make sure that no one's in the systems and, and, and we're making sure they, they stay out in every day. Enterprise IT, as I mentioned, uh, so across those portfolios, how are we modernizing, making the right investments, uh, workforce, and then the CIO compliance. So when you look at the information dominance flight plan, those five strategic initiatives are the key drivers for everything we do. Information dominance is not an easy task. Bill Marion, the Air Force's Deputy Chief Information Officer, highlights some of the key challenges he faces. Probably the number one right now is, is much like what you're seeing in industry, is, is the workforce side of it. Um, the competition in that space for, for talent uh, is like no other. I, I graduated out of college during the time of the IT bust, um, and so there was a lot of IT professionals and, and not necessarily a lot of IT jobs. Uh, now it's just the opposite, right? You have cybersecurity jobs, you have system interface development, web, mobile, cloud, uh, just out, just unbelievable growth in that area and not enough talent coming out. And so supporting STEM, the science, technology, you know, engineering, math type areas, how do we support also our current workforce and retooling them? Because in many times they've got 
core IT talents, but they don't necessarily have the latest cloud expertise mm-hmm. or they don't have the latest mobile expertise. Um, one of our big initiatives is the whole cyber recruiting. Uh, so looking differently, we used to do career fairs, you know, your old old school, go out and do a career fair for recruiting. Now we're actually getting into cyber competitions into colleges and universities. Uh, so really at the most foundational level, it's, it's the workforce side of it, both the ones we have and the ones that, that we need to grow. All major efforts are fraught with challenges as well as surprises. What has surprised Bill Marion most? Um, so I would say, you know, principally the scale issue of mm-hmm. every decision is a big decision, and so you need to make sure you get it right, and then also the ability to also make some very strategic impacts across the enterprise uh, through law and legislation. Bill Marion, the U.S. Air Force's deputy CIO, gives his perspective on how the role of CIO has evolved. The fundamental challenge, I think, for all the CIOs, how do you understand the business and be relevant in the business? So that trusted advisor is the day-to-day challenge, I think, of every CIO. Um, you've got to cut schedule. You've got to reduce price um, it, because it all adds value back to the to the organization. So as a CIO, to be a trusted advisor, you have to have wins. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have to deliver upon a mobile solution or a cloud solution or, or else, honestly, they go somewhere else. Um, and so from a leadership perspective, as a CIO, you're only trusted as if you if you deliver. Um, and I, across all the IT spaces and across all the portfolios, uh, that is the challenge every day, right? Because you could you could be very successful in four and you fail on one and, and it all starts over again. So uh, challenges on the network connectivity layer, challenges with getting more mobile, um, the pieces is, I'll call it reasonable expectations, but yet pushing the bar and trying to, trying to get there faster. Um, you take the acquisition challenges with retooling the workforce, and the policy implications, and you put all those as inhibitors at a scale of 700,000, it, it is a constant battle, yeah. right? Um, I'd like to think, uh, you know, the movement in mobile, the movement in cloud, uh, the movement to fundamentally reshape, we're making great strides there, um, but it's never done. As we continue our journey, next up, government executives offer their insights into the work they do and the missions they lead when the special edition of the Business of Government magazine a Year in Review returns. How does the U.S. Coast Guard use strategic foresight to inform decision-making? What is the evergreen process? How is the federal community sharing strategic foresight best practices? Join host Michael Keegan next week as he explores these questions and so much more with Commander Eric Popeil, Program Director for the U.S. Coast Guard's Evergreen Program. Business of Government Hour is Monday at 11 a.m. on Federal News Radio, 1500 a.m. The federal government can reduce costs while improving services by adopting private sector cost reduction strategies and technologies to achieve similar benefits in government. Check out the IBM Center special report, Transforming Government Through Technology. It outlines how technology-based reforms can reduce federal costs by more than a trillion dollars over the next decade. Download Transforming Government Through Technology and all center reports at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government magazine, a special edition of the Business of Government Hour. During this transition year, I had the opportunity to speak with government executives who are changing the way government does business. 
In many instances, they are leading programs that are at the core of the Trump administration agenda, ranging from trade to immigration to making the government work smarter. Every presidential transition is marked by its own unique combination of continuity and change. The government executives profiled here offer their insights into the work they do and the missions they lead. The Defense Health Agency, DHA, supports the delivery of integrated, affordable, high-quality health care services to the military health system to meet its mission to provide a medically ready force and a ready medical force the agency must acquire critical products and services. Dr. Barkley Butler, component acquisition executive at DHA, explains his role in making this happen. There are two main lines of effort uh, for me. One is on the procurement side, and that's really where I buy um, products and services uh, for the Defense Health Agency. Uh, and, it, and that is the full scope um, of those products and services. The other side of the house is the acquisition side. And this is where I'm leading the end-to-end from a requirements uh, concept development through to the development of a system to the operations and sustainment could be five or ten years, clear down to the disposal of the system. That's the entire life cycle chain of our major systems in the Defense Health Agency. My key role here is being the principal advisor to Admiral Bono in any and all matters having to do with acquisition and procurement. And so very specific on the acquisition side, um, I'm responsible for the planning, programming, budgeting, execution, coordination uh, across that uh, management uh, uh, structure that leads to uh, improved acquisition, a more efficient deployment of our systems, the management of the program managers themselves, typically through a program executive officer. Dr. Butler's pursuing agile principles and applying the software methodology to procurement and acquisition. Yeah, agile um, is a concept that was uh, really came out of the software development industry. It also allows you to evolve the requirements. Remember the the program manager's iron triangle, um, requirements, cost, and schedule, right? Under waterfall, requirements are fixed, and it's cost and schedule that changes. Under agile, it's cost and schedule that are fixed, and the requirements can fluctuate. And it's because the requirements can fluctuate is that as the development of the software goes on, the end customer gets a better product because they get to shape it. Well, take that to a contracting officer and say, hey, I want a contract and the requirements change. And they just get sweaty upper lip. I mean, this is the wrong thing for them to do. But So what we do in the agile software development world is that we create all these artifacts because it is our contracting processes that are very waterfall-ish. And we want to break that mold. So how do I create a contract that looks at the development of the software and the output of the system and and has the the end customer say, yes, I like what I see as a measure and keep going along that path as contrasted to any other surrogate measure. That'll be a trick. Although we've done it in government, I just got to find out who's done it and who's done it well and apply it within our own organization. I'll tell you, Colonel Wilson, out of our systems uh, design group, he uh, is using agile development, agile implementation. So what I want to do is now marry one of his small projects up with an agile contracting piece, train my contracting officers how to write agile contracts. Now I've got a process that I can then expand more broadly. 
Dr. Butler understands that DHA's success involves working with industry. They're coming to me and saying, I know what your problems are, and here are some solutions for you. That is a huge value add to me. So it's an industry that's done their job. They, they are coming to me, and they're showing me. They, they see gaps, and they already have thought about how to fill those gaps. That is a tremendously valuable relationship. I'll invite those guys in any day of the week. As an integral part of the U.S. General Services Administration, GSA, the Federal Acquisition Service, FAS, works to deliver comprehensive products and services across government at the best possible value. In June 2016, GSA established a new office in FAS called the Office of Professional Services and Human Capital Categories, responsible for oversight and program direction of GSA's professional services and human capital services under its Category Management Initiative. These changes support FAS's goal in implementing category management and improving service delivery efficiency and effectiveness. Tiffany Hicks, an assistant commissioner at FAS, provides insights into our strategic leadership and oversight of this portfolio. I'm focused on really using category management principles for those contracts that GSA has. And those account for about 25% of spend government-wide in professional services. And that's 25% of $69 billion a year. And so the government-wide view of professional services is it's running anywhere between 65 to $69 billion a year. Uh, government-wide. It's got an industrial base of about 34,000 contractors that participate in that space annually. We award government-wide a little over 23,000 new contracts a year for professional services. It's very, very broad. Over the last year, uh, we spent time really looking at the data through the federal procurement data system. What are people buying? How is that categorized? What contract types are we using? How much contract overlap is there um, among key suppliers? Um, is that good? Is that bad? Do we know yet? So those are the, the types of things that I focus on with my government wide hat on, which is it's very diverse, broad. And, you know, I work across agencies, right, to start to answer those questions. At least those use the top 10 users of professional services government-wide, I do. What is category management? Tiffany Hickson from GSA provides her insights. Category management is really an organizing principle, a management principle uh, that um, really the private sector has been using for a a number of years as a methodology uh, to better manage their spend, really make better use of their dollars from a procurement perspective. And for efficiencies, effectiveness, making sure that they're really getting the best value from uh, their suppliers um, when they're making purchases. There are core concepts uh, in terms of what category management is, and I'll walk through five of those, uh, at least in terms of how we're rolling that out today, which is the first is really optimizing your contract vehicles and really the contract landscape. Uh, Second is how do you manage your data and collect data and use data to make better business decisions. 
really maximizing the relationship with your customers, and in our case, you know, that's federal agencies. Um, so they're getting the best value from a frontline mission perspective. Um, and we're using information and contracts to actually deliver stuff so people can achieve their missions, which is really the, the main point of this. Leveraging uh, relationships with our key suppliers and the supplier base in general, um, and doing that in a very thoughtful way, in a structured way, with repeatable practices. Uh, and then also sharing best practices. How do you do this right with frontline buyers? I think those are really the core focus areas for category management and government now. But we're just starting. It takes time, but it also takes vision. Here's Tiffany Hicks, an assistant commissioner at FAS, explaining her vision. We are looking at reducing contract duplication not necessarily the number of contractors that are participating, you know, in the market, but really how do we rationalize the number of contracts that are out there? Mm-hmm. So if, you know, you've got 1,000 contracts, and let's say they're all IDIQ contracts that are effectively buying the same thing, right? How do we start to think through how we can kind of fix that problem to reduce administrative overhead and costs for industry? Um, So those are two major areas uh, of focus for us. We also, as we're we're starting to think through implementing new strategies, uh, ensuring small business participation and that we're achieving public policy objectives um, as we implement new initiatives is also a key area of focus for us. Tiffany Hickson from FAS talks about the importance of approving requirements development across government and how it should be done. We really need to get focused from a requirements perspective in getting back to performance-based contracting in a meaningful way. And that really helps develop um, a repeatable structure, process, template, right, for writing requirements and can really support us in reducing, we hope, uh, some cost, um, right, from the acquisition system and being more clear about those requirements um, when they're issued in a solicitation, right? There was a tool developed uh, a number of years ago, the seven steps to performance-based contracting, and it kind of has been out there in the ether in the internet um, and didn't really have a sponsor to take care of it. So we assumed possession from its owner are refreshing the whole tool. Um, and the goal with the tools, now it's not called seven steps because I guess there's now eight or nine steps or something. Um, so now it's just the steps to performance-based contracting. And so we're refreshing that digital tool um, that will walk uh, an acquisition team through the full life cycle and provide them with templates, best practices, how do you write a good performance-based work statement, what needs to be in there, templates um, for quality assurance plans and how are you going to monitor performance and that kind of thing. I think the Department of Defense and Homeland Security both are also doing some very good work uh, in really thinking about requirements management from a far more strategic perspective. They're really taking it strategically as well as tactically. In the end, what's it all about? Here's Tiffany Hickson. Whether it's for government-wide category management in the professional services space or it's about the contracts that, you know, I manage, um, it is about the agencies that use them, right? It's not about GSA. It's not about the category plan. It's about helping them be more effective. And if 
the only way that we would know that is that if we ever actually ask them. So I think the one thing that has been really nice about um, category management is as a community, it has forced us to come together and really start to prioritize um, and understand the challenges that we're facing. Today's challenges are forcing federal agencies to better prioritize, but more importantly, to anticipate the future. Commander Eric Popiel, program manager at the U.S. Coast Guard, manages the Evergreen Program, the Coast Guard's strategic foresight initiative, and is charged with doing just that. So my role is to run the Evergreen Program, uh, which is our strategic foresight initiative. What, uh, what I like to do is we like to think over the horizon. We try and uh, decouple ourselves from the budget cycle and look more long-term and uh, sort of operate in the, in the realm of, uh, of plausible future operating scenarios um, and try and sort of identify some, uh, some key um, issues or trends or challenges or opportunities that the Coast Guard needs to start getting ready for now to be ready for an uncertain future. Meeting an uncertain future involves building a strategically agile Coast Guard able to manage a complex and fast-changing environment. Commander Popiel explains. We're trying to build a strategic agile Coast Guard able to manage a complex and fast-changing environment. Uh, that's sort of the, the mission that, that I've come up with. And what we want to do that is instill strategic intent throughout our service. We want people to learn methodologies and learn strategic thinking so that they're able to identify this stuff and apply it, not just in their um, program, but actually across the Coast Guard. We're not thinking just a year ahead or one continuing resolution ahead that we're thinking really long term and we know where the Coast Guard wants to, wants to, uh, to be. I think that by doing this in sort of a scenario-based planning uh, methodology, we're able to identify some opportunities, um, but also identify some challenges. And if you're, if you're consistently just looking at an annual planning cycle, what's going to wind up happening is that you're going to be caught unawares of some of this, uh, some of the stuff that's coming down the pike when you should have seen it coming. We're trying to avoid the failure of imagination with this methodology. Avoiding the failure of imagination requires structure, method, and most of all, a core set of principles that guides one's effort to see beyond the horizon and throw off the shackles of the tyranny of the present. Commander Popiel identifies those guiding principles. Courage, integrity, creativity, and stewardship. I think that we have to be courageous. Uh, sometimes when you identify some trends that are coming down the, the, the pike, you're not always going to um, be the best friend of maybe senior leadership. A lot of people have different agendas, but I think that it's our responsibility to just speak the truth and speak, state the facts even when they're, when they're unpopular. And I think that that speaks to integrity as well too, right? Where I'm not going to tell someone just what they want to hear. Um, I'm going to tell them what we came up with and what the group of, of people or experts came up with. Um, it maybe it is not what they want to hear, but I've got to tell them that. Um, in terms of creativity, I think when you're designing alternative worlds, you're designing future scenarios, um, it's not just about sort of being rote and, you know, pulling stuff out and making something. You've got to be creative about these worlds that you're designing. When you want to immerse people in them, they have to be plausible. They've got to be something that people will, will want to, to look at and not just a bunch of facts. So we, we go about and we, we try and write some short stories. We try and get people to want to really immerse themselves in a scenario and hit the I believe button. Um, and finally, stewardship, I think, is critical to anything. The American taxpayers are the ones that are, that are paying my salary and they're, and they're paying a lot of people's salary in the Coast Guard. And I think that we have to be making the, the Coast Guard a better place. We cannot just be a think tank that spends a lot of money and comes up with big, grandiose ideas. We have to um, 
be making the Coast Guard a better place, and we have to have some actionable results. So my big motto is no more shelfware. I don't want to produce a report that some people are going to read and some people are going to stick on the shelf and maybe blow dust off of it. I really want to start linking this stuff to to things that are making the Coast Guard a better place. And and there's got to be a return on investment because that's what the, the taxpayers demand, and ultimately we serve them. How has the U.S. Coast Guard used strategic foresight in the actual development and execution of strategy? Commander Popeil explains how it has contributed to shaping the Coast Guard's Arctic strategy. One of the strategic needs that came out of Evergreen was a Coast Guard need to have a greater polar mission capacity. We've been going to the Arctic and the Antarctic for a lot longer than Evergreen's been around. But I'd like to think that placing an emphasis on that domain and saying, hey, listen, this is something that we're going to have to be wrestling with and tackling with, especially in light of climate change, is something that Evergreen, I think, would I'd like to say would influence just a little bit. Um, and while, like I said, we didn't write the strategy, um, sort of guiding people in the right direction is, I think, what we do best. The use of strategic foresight is happening across the federal government, and its future looks bright. Once again, Commander Eric Popeil offers his insights. All right, so I'm, I'm a huge optimist in this. As you can probably tell, I'm pretty passionate about this. My, uh, I really think that, that, like I said, we're sort of a grassroots organization, and I think that it's that the, the concept and the idea is taking off. To bring all of the sort of disparate foresight practitioners together in a way that they could share their best practices, they could, they could network, and they could sort of um, use the the collective power to to better the federal government. I think it's also been a place where people have uh, looked at different methodologies that are being used and started to apply them across their agencies. I know the VA is doing this. Obviously, Coast Guard is doing this. Um, Defense Threat Reduction Agency is doing this. FEMA has used the Coast Guard scenarios, and they continue to use them. And uh, and I believe and NOAA is looking at some stuff as well. So there are a variety of different uh, organizations that that are, that are using this stuff. And, and, and really trying to apply it and, and make their organizations better. Um, I think our time is, is coming. Um, we're not quite there yet. I think we still need to build a little bit. There are people out there who are looking long range and, and trying to make sure that their organizations and, and um, the federal government writ large is, you know, survives um, into, the, into the future. And not just survives, but really thrives and, and does, a, a, does a, a good job for the country and for the taxpayers. Stay tuned. More insights from government leaders when this special edition of the Business of Government magazine, A Year in Review, returns. The federal government can reduce costs while improving services by adopting private sector cost reduction strategies and technologies to achieve similar benefits in government. Check out the IBM Center special report, Transforming Government Through Technology, a companion piece to a more detailed report by the Technology CEO Council. That report outlines how technology-based reforms can reduce federal costs by more than a trillion dollars over the next decade. Driving change in the federal government requires more than new policies or the infusion of new technologies. It requires a sustained focus on implementation to achieve positive and significant results. This IBM Center special report provides a roadmap for government leaders to do just that. Download Transforming Government through technology and all IBM Center reports at businessofgovernment.org.
Welcome back to the Business of Government magazine, a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, exploring pressing public management issues facing us today. Along the more than 5,000 miles of border with Canada, 1,900 miles of border with Mexico, and approximately 95,000 miles of shoreline, the U.S. Customs and Border Protection, CBP, is responsible for preventing the illegal entry of people and contraband at and between the ports of entry. As America's unified border agency, it works tirelessly to detect illicit trafficking of people, drugs, weapons, and money, while facilitating the flow of cross-border commerce and tourism. The border environment in which CBP works is dynamic and requires continual adaptation to respond to emerging threats and rapidly changing conditions. The U.S. Border Patrol plays a significant role in making this happen. Carla Provost, acting chief of the U.S. Border Patrol, provides her insights into how our agency does just that. Our overarching priority is, is securing the border. And we do that through attempting to obtain operational control. Operational control is a term that I know you all have yep. heard. We've used it in the past. The Border Patrol created operational control, and and under the current administration, that has made it into um, some of the president's executive orders. When we talk operational control, we're really talking about expanding our situational awareness, improving our capabilities in impedance and denial, and then bringing a law enforcement response to whatever it is that is, whether we're making an apprehension, an arrest, whatever is crossing the border, and bringing it to a resolution. So that takes the men and women portion of it. So in simplest of terms, border security, as I said earlier, mm-hmm. securing the, the, the nation from those who would do us harm are our ultimate goal, and it really is our overlying priority for our strategy. Uh, we couldn't do it without the frontline men and women. That's the other portion of that model. We have to have the agents that can go out and and make the apprehensions and bring that law enforcement resolution to whatever it is that's trying to cross our borders. Securing our border, eliminating illegal entry, and working to realize this vision is as important as it is challenging. U.S. Border Patrol Acting Chief Provost is charged with fielding such an organization. I would say one of our top uh, challenges is recruitment okay. efforts. As as I know you know, the president has put out an executive order for us to hire 5,000 more Border Patrol agents, and there's a lot of competition out there mm-hmm. when it comes to law enforcement right now. Uh, we're competing with other federal agencies, state and local as well. It's just a very limited pool of applicants in the law enforcement realm. So that's one of our biggest challenges at this point, not to mention we are down about 2,000 agents from where we are supposed to be in our in our baseline to begin with. Immigration and security are key to the Trump administration agenda. Acting Chief Provost identifies the most serious threats and critical trends that are shaping and informing strategy? Well, the transnational criminal organizations that work along the border, of course, are of of huge concern to us. Mm -hmm. And that, whether it be alien uh, smuggling organizations or um, drug smuggling organizations, obviously the threat that they pose to the nation is of great concern to us. So when it comes to the narcotics that are being smuggled Mm -hmm. into the the country, the trends are shifting there as of late. And we've, uh, of course, have some concern about the hard narcotics that are coming across the border, whether it be methamphetamine, cocaine, heroin, fentanyl. 
So that is certainly a trend that we are watching very closely, that we work with our partners in the intelligence community as we uh, attempt to affect those transnational criminal organizations. Same with the alien smuggling. As you have seen, of course, um, in some of the media, we're always concerned about that. They don't care about the individuals that they're smuggling across the border, and it is certainly a concern for us. We have created units such as our Borstar unit, which mm-hmm. is a border search trauma and rescue unit in response to some of the tactics, techniques uh, that the alien smugglers use. Mm -hmm. So those are our main areas of concern. And of course, concerned about any of those that would bring anyone across that is looking to do more harm to terrorist threat to the country. How is the U.S. Border Patrol working to enhance its situational awareness? Acting Chief Provost continues. We work very closely with all of our other law enforcement partners, both federal, state, and and local. We also work very closely with the intelligence community. That situational awareness is is obtained through numerous things, whether it's through human intelligence, through signals intelligence. Working with our partners is, is really key to improving that situational awareness. Along with that is the technology that supports our efforts when it comes to detection, classification, identification of things that may be crossing our border. So we really work all all of that together really helps enhance our situational awareness. We have investments in numerous areas. First and foremost, we have agent portable surveillance systems, which provide tactical man-portable solutions for detection, identification, and classification. We have multiple mobile video surveillance capabilities that we utilize. Those provide both uh, near and long-range mobile surveillance, whether it be with radar, with cameras. We have things as simple as night vision goggles for our men and women. We also have integrated fixed towers that provide both radar and camera remote video surveillance systems, which is something that we have utilized since I joined the Border Patrol, but still to this day have infrared nighttime cameras that support our efforts, numerous types of sensors that uh, help us in this area. So we're really expanding our footprint on both fixed and mobile capabilities for our men and women. Industry and technology can help the U.S. Border Patrol achieve its mission. But in the end, its greatest asset is its frontline officers, its people. Our greatest asset are our men and women on the front line. Though Border Patrol has has developed and, and changed over the 93 years there, that we've been around, a lot of the work that we do hasn't changed. The ability to track and sign cut, uh, the ability we, we still use horse patrol today, and that is a critical element, non-technology element. We have the canines when it comes to detection. We have agents on everything from bicycles, uh, all-terrain vehicles, but it really, all of that comes back to the men and women that are out there day in and day out, and that they can never be replaced, what they bring to the table. Their intuition, the knowledge that they bring, the experience that they bring is really key. When you combine that with the infrastructure and the technology, it really is the whole package. Along with protecting and securing our country's borders, The U.S. Customs and Border Protection, CBP, is also charged with enforcing nearly 500 U.S. laws and regulations on behalf of 47 federal agencies. It also facilitates compliant trade, collects revenue, and protects the U.S. economy and consumers from harmful imports and unfair trade practices. Brenda Smith, Executive Assistant Commissioner at the Office of Trade within the U.S. Customs and Border Protection, oversees a diverse portfolio of trade facilitation and enforcement matters. 
she shares her insights into the national strategy for the facilitation of legitimate trade and the role her office plays in executing this strategy. So the, the Office of Trade is really charged by the commissioner to carry out CBP's trade mission, which really goes to um, the compliance of goods coming into and going out of the United States, as well as the collection of $46 billion a year in duties, taxes, and fees. My office, the Office of Trade, really has a number of functions to be able to do that. We have a policy and program function, which really go to the core programs like the Protect of intellectual property rights and the collection of anti-dumping and countervailing duties. We also have a, a large, nearly 400 regulatory auditors that work with the importing community to assess compliance. We have a group that focuses on trade enforcement solely. We have a trade transformation office that is, as it says, looking to transform what we do every day to make it sh- sure it supports the American economy. And then the final group is regulations and ruling that issues essentially guidance to the trade community on what the laws and regulations really mean. Brenda Smith, Executive Assistant Commissioner of the Office of Trade at CBP, tells us more about her leadership role. So a couple of things. Um, one, I really see myself as the primary advocate for the, the trade mission. And it, it goes back to the legacy customs mission, you may not know. But in 1789, in the Fifth Act of Congress, which established the, the U.S. Customs Service to re- essentially pay for revolutionary war debt. And ever since, we have been on the front line, on the borders, protecting the United States, as well as collecting those duties, taxes, and fees. On a day-to-day basis, um, I not only advocate for compliance with those laws that protect the United States, but also am an advocate and responsible for outreach to the trade community. We have over 350,000 importers, over 13,000 customs brokers, along with carriers and freight forwarders, household names that are responsible for managing supply chains that make sure safe goods come into the United States. So I really interface along with my team with those folks to make sure not only that they're following the law, but when they're bringing in compliant goods, that they can do so quickly, easily, and cheaply so we don't add to their costs. Meeting this critical economic security mission rests on a national strategy to facilitate legitimate trade. Brenda Smith from CBP elaborates. We have sort of an inherent tension in what we do every day between facilitation and enforcement. And what we've learned over the last couple of years is that we don't balance between these two. They actually complement each other. If we get one right, then the other is easier to do. And, you know, we often use the metaphor of the needle in a haystack. But what we're really trying to do is make that haystack smaller. We do that through data. Um, We do that through using our skills around industry expertise, um, analytical skills, the ability to use data appropriately. And so as we look at the strategic priorities of the Office of Trade and trying to enforce and facilitate, I'm looking at the ability to integrate the data that we have and use it to make good risk-based decisions. So that's a really critical thing, and that means investment in automation as well as being able to have the right skills to analyze the data 
and then act on it. I think another critical piece of it is the relationship we have with the private sector. Um, A lot of the information and a lot of the education we get about the industry issues, compliance, uh, enforcement, actually comes straight from the trade community. And so our ability to work with them to gather that information and act on it is really important, as is the ability to collaborate with the private sector to come up with solutions, whether it's a compliance issue or we want to streamline a traditional process that they're telling us just no longer works for them. CBP's Executive Assistant Commissioner Brenda Smith continues identifying three core priorities for her office. So I think our our efforts around information integration, around increasing the skills, and then collaborating with the private sector would really be sort of the three priorities, enablers that we use to make enforcement and facilitation happen. Pursuing these three priorities comes with its challenges. Once again, Brenda Smith delineates. One is making sure that we are, in fact, carrying our, out our security mission. And it, it has taken us a while to understand that economic security is a key part of homeland security. And from the Office of Trade's perspective, our role in economic security is not only making sure that people's quality of life uh, is supported by the goods that travel into and out of the country, but also that domestic industry is able to run their businesses on a level playing field and really compete actively in the global economy. And our role really supports both of those. It goes to jobs. It goes to safe goods on store shelves. And my job, I think, is really to find better ways to keep doing that. Wildland fire plays a central role in the ecological process because it acts like a natural change agent. But in the past two decades controlling it has become much harder. A rapid increase in difficult wildfire behavior, accompanied by a significant rise in risks to responders and citizens, losses to home and property, soaring costs, and threats to communities and landscapes all act as obstacles to efficient wildland fire control. Fire is very important. Acknowledges Brian Rice, former director of the Office of Wildland Fire at the U.S. Department of the Interior. He continues. Fire is an incredibly important part of the ecosystem. If you look at our landscape across this country, whether it's rangeland or forested land, woodlands, which is that in-between types of forested land, they're all uh, have some nexus to fire. Even, even farmers you see in the Midwest, they burn their stubble fields after the harvest, right, to, to cycle nutrients. There's, and so fire has this incredible, incredible place in the landscape. There's stands of different types of pine species that need fire. The heat actually releases the seeds from the cones. So if you look at a, a very commonly known species, the ponderosa pine, ponderosa pine has an extremely thick bark. It's in an ecosystem that needs fire. It cleans out the underbrush. It cleans out the lower, smaller vegetation and allows the the tree to grow healthier and stronger, as well as repopulate, germinate seeds from the the cones that are coming down. So there's this incredible need for fire in the landscape. How do we get to that place where we actually say, this fire we actually need to address? And I would say in the federal space— Every fire has some type of response. 
The response may be just to watch and monitor to ensure that the fire is not threatening infrastructure, public, uh, any other type of safety that goes with it. But ultimately, there's a decision that's made to be more aggressive or to be monitoring. So how do we get there? So what we find across the country, though, is that roughly 97 to 98 percent of all fires are stopped right away. So we, we call that our initial attack success rate. So initial attack means somebody spots a fire, public, uh, an aircraft. Somebody calls in and says, we see smoke. We think there's a fire. 97, 98 percent of all those fires are stopped within 24 to 36 hours. We call it the first operational period. Uh, other than that, beyond that, those are the fires that usually are bigger and, and require more, more attention. Wildland fire management responsibilities are characterized by a patchwork of jurisdictions and ownership, and often more than one agency may be involved in managing wildland fire incidences. It is the result of collaboration, partnership, and cooperation among states and federal fire management agencies. The U.S. Department of the Interior's Office of Wildland Fire is one such agency that plays an integral role in the nation's response to today's wildland fire challenges. Brian Rice, who led this office within Interior, explains. So the the Office of Wildland Fire is a product of many things that have happened here over the last several decades. In the Department of the Interior, there's four bureaus that manage land. There's roughly 500 million acres of land that they're managing. Uh, National Park Service, Bureau of Indian Affairs, Fish and Wildlife Service, Bureau of Land Management. So at the time, decision was made to stand up a singular office to manage the budget, to set the policy concurrently and through consensus with the bureaus to actually have a cohesive and cogent fire uh, management organization. So the office has been in place for roughly two decades, early 2000, so uh, formally 2002. And the mission is really to focus on uh, a large-scale budget that, that supports all fire operations, all other land management activities in connection with their programs, but across the country within the Department of the Interior. Since our discussion, Brian has been promoted to the Director of Bureau of Indian Affairs. This move is a testament to his leadership skills and his dedication to public service. We wish him the best in his new role and hope to have him back on the Business of Government Hour. I hope you've enjoyed the leadership stories, insights, recommendations, and profiles presented on today's The Business of Government magazine, a year in review, a special edition of the Business of Government Hour. You may order or download a free copy of the latest The Business of Government magazine at businessofgovernment.org and find out how the business of government is not business as usual. Be sure to join us next week for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government effectiveness. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan, and thanks for joining us. This has been the Business of Government Hour. Be sure to visit us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. There you can learn more about our programs and get a transcript of today's conversation. Until next week, it's businessofgovernment.org. The federal government can reduce costs while improving services by adopting private sector cost reduction strategies and technologies to achieve similar benefits in government.
check out the IBM Center Special Report, Transforming Government Through Technology. It outlines how technology-based reforms can reduce federal costs by more than a trillion dollars over the next decade. Download Transforming Government Through Technology and all Center Reports at businessofgovernment.org. How does the U.S. Coast Guard use Strategic Foresight to inform decision-making? What is the evergreen process? How is the federal community sharing strategic foresight best practices? Join host Michael Keegan next week as he explores these questions and so much more with Commander Eric Popeil, Program Director for the U.S. Coast Guard's Evergreen Program. The Business of Government Hour is Monday at 11 a.m. on Federal News Radio, 1500 a.m.